Welcome to Can't Knock the Shuffle Season 2. I'm your host, Sean Kantrowitz. If you're anything like me, and I'm going to go out on a limb here and assume we have this in common, you love finding out how songs are made. The stories, the details, the hidden gems, all of it. Here's the thing. Most artists typically only get asked about a handful of their most popular tracks. Not only do fans like you and I want to hear the stories behind all of the songs, but I long have suspected that the artists themselves are pretty eager to share some of the untold stories too. That's why I created Can't Knock the Shuffle. I take an artist's entire catalog, put it in a playlist, throw it on shuffle, and then we talk about whichever songs are randomly selected. It's like live liner notes with an algorithm in the driver's seat. All right, so in this episode, I'm joined by rapper Fat Tony. The Houston native first popped up onto my radar in the early part of the last decade from his appearances on mixtapes by both ASAP Rocky and Das Racist, which should really tell you all you need to know about how diverse this guy's palette is. Anyway, since then, he's had a wildly prolific career, dropping albums at a steady clip and constantly tweaking and evolving his sound. His most recent album was last year's Exotica, and it really finds Tony embracing the role of the griot with a concise collection of storytelling songs. I first connected with him when he appeared on an episode of my hip-hop game show The Questions last year. And we had such a good time, I just knew that we had to reconnect and get even more in-depth on some music talk. And that's exactly what we did. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Fat Tony. You know, I was telling somebody else uh, in another episode I just recorded recently, it's good to have distractions, not, not to not be paying attention to what's happening, but, you know, diving into the minutia of rap songs definitely has been a bit of a, a saving grace through all this. So. Saved my life last year, putting out so much music. Like, I put out three records last year. So pretty much during the pandemic, I had something to do. I had something to look forward to. I had something that stretched my creativity. And I think if I didn't have that and was just aimless every day, you know, I would be in a fucking worse spot mentally. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, you, you mentioned that you did have a very prolific uh, 2020, but you had a pretty prolific career throughout. You know, you haven't necessarily had as long of a career as some of the guests that uh, I had on the show uh, previously, but if you were to stack the catalogs back-to-back -back with each other, it doesn't look like <laughs> you've been in it a shorter amount of time. Now, nah, man, I, I always... Um... It's kind of funny because this shorter time that I'm having that you've heard is the first 10 years of my music career. So over this time, I think there's so much music because you're watching me, you're listening to, to me figure out things. Like from my first album to now, there's been different sounds, different collaborators. And I think it's really healthy that I had the opportunity to make so much music and to just try stuff. And I met so many people who were just eager to link up and just work on projects. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, in that process, do you sort of in that time feel like you're trying things on in a search for a sound? Or does it sort of feel like Fat Tony, the brand, the the artist, the the creative vision is is all things? Like, Or is there a difference between those two? Maybe there's not. I feel like at this point with my latest album, Exotica, I think I've hit a point where I feel like, all right, I know that this is the sound I want to pursue. 
This is the lane of songwriting and storytelling I want to pursue. And that album's made with my producer, Goldeneye, a.k.a. Tom Cruise, who's the first producer I ever worked with back when I was a teenager. And some of the ideas on this album have been present in some of our other work. So I think it's a bit of me trying things out and then looking back at it, at it all and just picking out like what feels good and what works and what resonates the most with people. Song one. This is from 2018. It's from your 10,000 Hours album. And it's actually the first song on the album. It's the first song of this podcast. The song is Through the Storm. Never took a liking to the lifestyle Dabble just a little but I never say I'm that wild Never say never since the beginning I was that child Ready and willing to get it in focus Hoping to be a rap god Quite odd, few screws loose on my iPod Mac Dre, UGK, 12th grade in the 8th Went hard every day at Carnegie Vanguard Better niggas know exactly what my next plans are Few years later I'm in LA with Tom Cruise 2012, the years prior I paid dues Fucked with dance races When you make a song does it feel like, yo, this is the first song on the album? Or, or is that a contentious spot? No, that's a great question. With this song, it was made as the intro song. From the onset, me and the producer, Heaven the Dude, we were like, let's work on what's going to be the intro track. And that song changed form so many times. First, it was a beat that Heaven made. And then we passed it to Goldeneye. Goldeneye added a bunch of sounds to it, passed it back to uh, Heaven. He added sounds. And that was like, that was, was an intro where I wanted to show Heaven, a new producer that I'm working with, and, t and tie it back to my past producer just to have it, have the uh, sauce of my music, right? And on that song, it's kind of a song where I'm like listing like a resume kind of, but I'm kind of just re- counting where I've been just business-wise, going from like being in Houston, not knowing nobody, to actually putting out records. So on that song, I'm talking about working with ASAP Rocky. I'm talking about the first time I moved to Los Angeles. I'm like really, for like myself, I'm like thinking back on how did I go from dreaming of having a music career to having one? And I've never really talked about that stuff in my music before. You know, a lot of my songs... Prior to that album, I didn't really talk about my rapper life, like, you know, who I'm who I'm fucking with, where I go on tour, all that type of shit. And I thought it'd be good to have at least one record where I address that stuff in a way that's straightforward and really directed to people who've been following me. Like, that's not the type of song that I'd expect somebody new to me to get into. It is something that's more satisfying for the longtime fan. Right. You're kind of speaking to the audience that, that's already been there. 2018 feels like it was 13 years ago at this point. Fuck but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when, you, when you look back at it, you know, now, what was the sort of, how would you encapsulate the 10,000 hours era? You know, where were, where were you at? Because you're at a point, obviously, where there was some reckoning where you're able to look back and sort of summarize and give this sort of encapsulation of everything that's happened thus far. But now that you're a couple of years removed from that album, what, what sort of role do you think that 10,000 hours played? 2018 was when I turned 30. So I was taking a serious look at my life up until that point because that's a milestone. And also, that was me coming off the longest touring that I had done in many years. Like in 2012, I went on like 
three tours back to back to back. I never did anything close to that until 2017 and and 2018. So I'm thinking like, damn, I feel like my live performance has hit that 10,000 hours mark where I know how to work different crowds. I know how to translate my recorded music into a live show that is interesting. Like that was the first time when I was doing shit like the neon moon trick. That was like that like little blend with the with uh, blow the whistle. That was my intro to hood party during my live set. Like that's the first time where I was thinking like, how can I incorporate my you know DJ side, my personality? How can I make it really interesting to come and see me live? And I was feeling really proud of that. And I wanted to make an album that looked back on my life as I was turning 30 and also make a record that felt like I could perform it live. Like so much of that album, we we recorded it really loose. Like on Texas, we like made it on like a SM58 mic. You know what I mean? We like tried to make an album that felt like it was out the bedroom and just raw, like, you know, just like kind of like trying to take it back. It's it's so funny because it's all about looking back. It's like as I'm looking back on my past, I'm also thinking about my very beginnings and wanting to channel some of that spirit. So unlike albums before 10,000 Hours, much of that record was just made at my house. The producer Heaven was my roommate at the time. So I'd just be in his room making music. And we kept a lot of the vocals from, from those sessions too, like just to keep it raw. You know, you were talking about with the live show, it, you really can't premeditate it. The only way to sort of reach that point is by doing it. You could have your your sort of thoughts or theories about, oh, this will be great, or, or this is who I am. But until you've really put it into practice so many times and, and been with the ringer so many times, it's, it's all abstract until you've really put in the work. I was feeling like myself, just on a, on a personal level and in my music, I was feeling like myself in a way I had never felt before. And I remember telling friends of mine, like, I feel more like myself right now than I ever have in my life. It's not that I was fake or not myself before. And any of my friends I mentioned that to were like, what do you mean? Like, it doesn't seem like you haven't been yourself ever. But I just felt like I've gotten to a point where I'm where I'm more confident than I've ever been as my in, in myself as a musician. And I have a better idea of what I want my music and my whole and and this whole Fat Tony project to be in a way that I hadn't really come to me before, you know. So I'll, I'll always look at that album as the start of this point where I'm at now, where I'm thinking about me and my music in a much deeper way. In that hindsight now, because you are able to look back, do you feel, you know, how do you sort of evaluate your projects? Because obviously, when we're speaking with artists, when we're evaluating careers, like where we're not selling like you know, 3 million, 5 million records, you know, like, so the the barometers by which we measure some of these things in the indie space can be different. Sometimes it's just, did the message get, you know, put across correctly? Or, or did I, did I get something from this that maybe you weren't even planning on, on learning or, or achieving from it? So what would you say in terms of in delivering the message and the mission statement of that album? Do you feel like it was successful or do you feel like you were aiming for one thing, but maybe it, it, took a turn and you got something that was equally good, but just not what you were expecting. I have some some criticisms of that album, but I feel like generally speaking for me, when I think one of my projects is a success, it's when I've made a project that is 
thorough and feels full. Like you listen to it and it makes sense. There are themes that you can pick up on. And some of those things come through because we intend for them to be that way. And sometimes they just happen that way. Like you make an album in like a month and you start to notice throughout the songs you're referencing certain themes, certain words are like appearing. And from that, you can kind of form this like thesis statement about that album. And for me personally, when I have a project that doesn't feel like it's concise and thoughtful, that's when I feel like I missed the mark. And I feel like on that album, I was so much in the young mode of just throwing out stuff, trying different things, rapping on songs, auto-tune singing on songs, just like going all over the place, that it's not as concise and compact of a thought as I would like it to be. So in like my mind, that album kind of exercises my like mixtape muscle where I'm just getting off on the energy of like putting out a lot of songs. And I and I think that that's why that's an album where there are songs that people love, but I don't know if many people would say they love the album. Like that song, Texas, is one of my most popular songs and I think one of my best songs. And I feel like that song better captures the spirit of me and who I am than the whole album does. Like through that one song, I am talking about where I'm from. I am touching on my past in ways that are a bit more subtle than that intro song, which I also think is a good approach. But but yeah, that is what I look at. So like I look at albums of mine, like from the art to the music, you can tell that there's a concise thing happening here. There are themes that are appearing multiple times throughout the album. That's when I feel like a project has really done its job. Song two. From 2020, the prolific Fat Tony year, 2020, as we shall refer to it now in history books. Uh, it's from Exotica, and the song is called What Wake You Up featuring Honey, What wake you up in the morning? Alarm clock respect? The allure of a check? What wake you up in the morning? Ain't no sense in even answering. Cause today you're up, tomorrow you're down Just be glad that your ass still around My nigga, you know that life is what you make it Whatever it gives you, you give it back or you can take it Shake it off your shoulders, take a sip of Folgers Try to remember just what the big homies told you yeah, I mean, you. we're talking about we concise statements Exotica is a very concise statement Yeah, dude, and I think that that intro is one of the best intro songs I've ever made even just the imagery alone of making a song that's about waking up as your album opener and have it open up with like somebody recounting a dream they just had. That's just just the imagery of that alone feels good for the start of something. And also, I feel like it really sets the tone of what the album's about. And that's that's an interesting song because that's a song that we made thinking that it would be an intro. But unbeknownst to me, it spoke more about what the whole album's about than we intended it to be. Like after finishing the project and looking back at all the songs and then hearing that that like intro, I'm like, damn, this is more of a thesis statement than I think I've ever done in an intro song before. And, and just getting Bun B on, it was fucking crazy. <laughs> the legend, I mean, the legend to anybody, but then you being from Texas, I mean, that I I could never understand what that means to you because you're from Texas, you know, like that's that's Bun B. I mean, come on. Yeah, I mean, me and Goldeneye 
have an interesting connection to UGK that I feel like we fulfilled the full circle of that connection with having Bun on this album. First of all, when I was 18, I did my first radio interview at a station in Houston and Bun B was there. And the radio host was friends with Bun. And I asked the radio host, yo, could you let me get a picture with Bun? Me and Bun took a picture. After that moment, I went to all the in-stores that Bun had. I went to this motherfucker's concerts. Everywhere that he had an event, I would pull up on him and I'd have a demo for him. Because back in that day, I was making like fucking songs all the time, burning them. Even if the disc had one or two songs on it or like 18 songs, I'd burn my new shit. And if I'm going to see any rapper, i try to pull up on him. I fucking gave my uh, demo to Peanut Butter Wolf, to anybody that came through Houston, right? And I would always roll up to Bun and he'd be down to take a picture, but I would ask him, yo, can you hold up my uh, mixtape? And he'd be like, nah, I ain't doing it. And after like maybe four or five years of me doing this on and off, I'm at a show, I see Bun B. And also by this time, I'm like starting to do more. Like I started winning some local awards for music. I started playing more and more shows, like building a following. I hadn't put out an album. I was just doing my thing locally, right? And I saw Bun at this show and he fingered me over. I go over to him and he's like, yo, come with me. We go in the back and we smoke a blunt and he's just like chopping it up with me. And I'm like, damn, Bun finally accepted me, right? So that's, that's my connection to Bun. With Goldeneye, he was in a group that was signed to Warner Brothers, and they arranged for him to come to Houston to work with Mike Dean. And this was in December of 2007. Now, me and Goldeneye met on MySpace, and this trip to Houston was going to be our first time linking up. But I knew that he was there to work with Mike Dean, and it wouldn't be like, we like wouldn't get to kick it much. He gets to Houston... And I don't know if it's the day that he got to Houston or the same week, but Pimp C died and Mike Dean closed all of his appointments. So now Goldeneye is in Houston and has all this free time. We end up linking up. Turns out that his mom is from Houston. I go to link up with him. He's staying at his grandma's house who happened to be two streets over from my mom's house. And we spent this whole like month just hanging out. And at the end of that trip, we decided to make music together. And that became my first album, Gab. So in a weird way, Pimp C passing tragically led to him having time, us linking up, and that being the foundation of my music. Wow. And now to have Bun B on, on our album years later to the point where like I've gone from being a fan to being a friend of his, and like him being a guy that I can talk to about music from the business to even songwriting. It's just such an honor to have him on the opening track. Talking about songwriting, Exotica takes uh, its focus and points it more towards storytelling. What was sort of the inspiration and what led you to take that path? And considering that's your most recent or one of your most recent albums you know how has your songwriting process evolved over the course of your career that is a great question because it has changed a whole lot um what inspired the storytelling on this album was really my last two albums Ten Thousand hours and wake up where 
like I said before, I tr- I try to take more of an autobiographical approach, talk about where I've been in music, talk about my like partner, talk about my family, talk about friends. And I felt like it would be corny to do a Dear Diary album again. So let's tell some stories and channel out my thoughts and my imagination through these characters, which also just proved to be such a challenge because writing that album, I was so in the mode of me, 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 first person, even if I'm not talking about myself, because typically rapping, you're like bragging and and like talking your shit. You're like representing for you or, or for your people or for whatever. So to get my mindset out of that was the first challenge. But once we cracked that code, everything flowed. Like I made that album when I lived in Brooklyn last year and GoldenEye lives in Kingston, Jamaica. So... He flew to New York and we set a week aside just to write and to brainstorm. And every day we just thought up characters. We would talk about the details of their lives. We like watched a movie about a gambler, which kind of helped us make the character of like gambling man. Like we just really tried to focus on making characters and stories that were compelling in a three-minute song. Even though you don't get to see them or know all the details of their life, we want you to understand who Jeremy Bixby is, who the dad that's lusting after the woman and feeling groovy is, who Johnny the Gambling Man is. And it's it's really Gambling Man where we cracked that code because the first day of writing, we were kind of like at a loss. We didn't really come up with, with anything. We like made a few beats, set up the studio, and then second day, we we were kind of starting feeling like, not like disappointed, but kind of like, damn, we just have a week to work. And the first day, we didn't make a concrete song. Second day, we started talking about Gambling Man, started writing that song. And that song just flowed out of us with ease from like the verses to the chorus, like super duper easy. And from that point on, we were like, this is the mode that we need to be in. This is the way we need to start our conversations that lead to songwriting. Because that's that's a song where like, I was telling him about this country song I love. It's a Merle Haggard song, Jimmy the Broom. And it's about a guy named Jimmy who is a janitor. He lives in Reno and he's basically like a drifter. He just hangs out all day, drinks, gambles, sweeps. And he talks a lot about his ex-wife and this life that he left behind. And one day, Jimmy the Broom dies. And the song's about him, his uh, friends figuring out what to do with him. They don't know his last name. They don't know where he's from. They, they don't know any of his family. And it's kind of a sweet, sad song about this, like, obviously lonely wanderer. And I had an image of a man like that being in a desert city, and I was telling Goldeneye that. And from that imagery, it just sparked this whole gambling man concept. And that's how we treated every song from like that point on. We would just talk about characters and just feed off each other, like, what if this character did this or did that? Or or what kind of people would he date? Or what kind of attitude would he have? You think he's an angry guy? You think he's a bitter guy? And that's how all the songs evolved. So when you have Bun on on the album or any other guest on a song like that, whether it's this project or, or otherwise, are you prepping them? Or are you sort of like prepping him and being like, yo, this is sort of the concept? Or do you just play it for him and then he he knows what to do? 
Nah, I, I mean, I feel like if you're going to have a guest for your project, you definitely want to give them some sort of direction. So after we wrote the album in uh, Brooklyn at uh, Still Tip Dove Studio, by the way, shout out to Still Tip Dove. That's my motherfucking nigga. We went to Jamaica to go record the album. And while we're out there, I get a text from Bun. He's like, yo, I just saw on IG, you're, you're in Jamaica. I'm out here too. I'm like, holy shit, I'm in Jamaica, Bun is here, I'm recording my album, I gotta get him on it. I tell him to pull up, I send him the address, like, I'm not even asking what he's there for, I'm like, address, pull up, I'm making an album, and he's like, actually, I'm here with my wife for her birthday. And I'm like, all right, well, when you're free, can you come? He's like, bro, I'm not in Kingston where you're at, I'm in Montego Bay, which is on the other side of the country. But rather than letting that stop us, I rented an Airbnb for one night. <laughs> Me and Gold and I packed up a little mobile studio gear, drove across the country to record this verse. Now, granted, Bun is there for his wife's birthday, so he doesn't have that much time. So throughout that day, he's like texting me like, yo, maybe I'll be free in an hour. And it's like, oh, she want to get a fucking massage or... Oh, I'm free now. Oh, she want to go get a drink. Tell me this was a situation where he's like, oh, honey, I have to go to the bathroom for a second. I'll, I'll be right back. Like, there's like a candlelit dinner. And he's just like, oh, uh, I have to make sure I put money in the meter. And he's like, all right, let's say this first real quick. He, he also told me that he like told her like, yo, Tony's here. I'm about to record him. And, and she was like, nah, do it when y'all back in Houston. And she was like, yo, he don't live in Houston, blah, blah, blah. And she was like, she like wasn't trying to let him go rap with his friends. You know what I mean? <laughs> but finally, he got like 30 minutes time. He comes to the Airbnb. Me and Goldeneye are watching Hip Hop Evolution on Netflix. And it's like Puffy and like Faith Evans or someone like TV. Bun comes in, starts telling us about how he met Biggie and like talking about stories he like heard about Pac. And like we just talking shit for like 10 minutes. Then finally he's like, let's go do it. We go up to our little studio, which is just a bedroom in the upstairs of the Airbnb with some PA speakers, interface, mic set up. And I play him the track and I'm basically telling him what I wanted him to do in the third verse, which is throughout the song. I'm talking about different people's lives from the priest to the doctor, to the cop, to the homeless man, to the to the mother, just all these people who have ups and downs. I, I'm, I mentioned a rich man. I mentioned a man that's missing a leg. And basically that song is to tell the audience to be grateful for who you are and what your life is and make sure you're living for something that is pure that you can hold on to, not just for money or status or anything that's fleeting. And don't get down in the in the dumps if you take an L and become a fucking bitter fuck. You know what I mean? And I wanted Bun to basically sum that up, whereas throughout the song, I'm just talking about these different people's situations. I wanted him to bluntly, plainly be like, yo, this is what you need, need to do, my nigga. And um, I'm playing the song, and the whole time that I'm playing the track and I'm talking, he's just typing in his phone. Then he asked me to play the song one more time. He's just in his phone, typing, typing, typing. And then he's like, yo, I got it. Gets up, does the verse, nails it the first take. We recorded a safety, but didn't need it. After that, he was like, all right, guys, I got to go. We offered him a ride to the hotel. He's like, nah, I'm good. Bun just walks out of the Airbnb on vacation mode. He's in shorts and flip-flops. He's just chilling. 
And I'm just looking like, damn, it's a fucking rap legend walking out of here right now. That's an incredible story. One more question on this song. There's obviously a lot of storytelling that happens in music. There's a lot of storytelling that happens in hip hop, you know, maybe not as much as the typical mode of operation that a lot of rappers, uh, you know, tend to go in. What for you is the sleeper hit of uh, storytelling in music? Andre Nicotina, Train With No Love. And if you listen to, I was trying to rip him off on this album on one song. I think Jeremy Bixby, when I did Jeremy Bixby, I was thinking about Nicotina's flow on that Train With uh, No Love song. Now, that's a song about a drug dealer. His like partner, his like best friend turns on him and the drug dealer goes to jail and all this bad shit happens. The drug dealer gets out of jail, finds out that his partner has been murdered, but in a safe deposit box, he left him tons of money and an apology for turning him in and fucking him over. I found out about that song back when I was 21 or 22. I got arrested in Texas for weed which um, I don't know what it's like now, but Texas back in my day was notorious for arresting people for like even a smidge of weed. I was leaving a bar after work at like 10 p.m. and I rolled a joint for me to smoke when I got home. I got pulled over, went to jail, got on probation for one year. I'm like 21, 22. All my friends are going out to bars. I can't really go out to bars. So I meet this girl who's on probation too, and we start to kick it because we're like papers buddies, right? And she put me on to that song and put me on to Andre Nicotina. And at first I was blown away that I hadn't heard of this guy because he's like a Bay Area legend and I love Bay rap, especially at that time. And I just loved how matter-of-factly he tells a story and raps the song. Like, it's the same cadence throughout the, the whole song, which is what I did on Jeremy Bixby. And I feel like that's a tactic that you use when you want people to focus on the content. It's on the story. That's what's supposed to wow you, not my flow or my cadence or whatever. It's about the concept and, and my imagination that's next level. I think it's genius. Incredible. You heard it here first, folks. Or maybe not, but <laughs> <laughs> but you heard it from Fat Tony here first. Song three. Third song. And I promise we're not just doing first songs on albums, but it, <laughs> this is how it happens sometimes. Listen, the algorithm works in mysterious ways. Yo, I don't, who I don't, is this I, algorithm that you're using? Listen, I can't tell you all about the algorithm. <laughs> like He likes to keep a low profile, but I, I could set you, I'll connect you guys via email. Thank you. This is also from 2020, the year of Tony, uh, the, the Chinese New Year, I believe, was the, the Tony was the animal. That's right. Uh, um, right. They need to it, change that shit. Do it. Come on. If you're listening and you're at all involved in making those decisions. China, uh, help. Uh, it's for the Wake Up album that you did with Tay Dex, and the song is called Get Out My Way. Said they can't pay me. I did it 180. You better get it sorted before you make an order because a nigga or a globe. Since I had a premonition that a nigga finna get a lead Been going through the motions, through the ups and downs And I still smile on this bitch Been frustrated, but I don't hate it Got a lot to give, way more to live But I'm still with all the shits Addicted, I got an 
itch, scratch it, take a sniff Smell how the hell I live, got it out the mud, I don't quit I'm true to me, no angles, I'm real direct to my aim for I hold it down for my city What is appealing to you about collaborating with one producer uh, on albums? Because you do that frequently Oh, because I think that it's important to have a, a unified sound in a project What I said earlier about having themes and stuff that make a cohesive project that's important to me. What's equally important to me is the sound of the project. You know what I mean? And I think working with one producer is just a simple way to get it dialed in. You know what I mean? Because even if you and the producer stretch and try different stuff musically, it's still y'all two. So to the listener, it's going to feel all like part of one thing. Man, you know, me and Tay Dex, we fucking love the Deftones album, White Pony. And I feel like that album was an influence on this track. Like we had tried to make a song once that was more in like the Deftones vein and it was just whack to us. But I think through this song, we were trying to channel like the distortion and loudness that we like in that album in this song, rather than like trying to channel like some big ass drums or anything like this. This is a song that's all about the noise that's going on behind me. And I and I kind of look at Tay Dex like the bomb squad. So when I'm rapping on his shit, I'm, I'm trying to sound forceful like on my Chuck D shit. Yeah, that's crazy. I met Tay Dex uh, early on living here in LA because I was working with uh, some of his production partners, uh, Wesley and Roger. Those are my people. Yep, yep. How did you guys first link? So I met him in the most corny industry way possible. I met him through my publisher and an A&R years ago. I was supposed to have a session with all three of those producers and Taylor was the first guy to show up. And he just got back from like Tokyo or something and had some Japanese whiskey. And I was like, all right, I ain't, I ain't never had that. Let me, you know, dabble. And we just started drinking and talking about, about Japan and music and, and just, just like vibing. You know what I mean? And the producers showed up later and we all made a track. And I continued to, to work with all three of those guys. But I just felt like I vibed with Tay Dex the most. So I started just to link up with him solo to, to make music. And he produced Swervin' on my McGregor Park album, which is like one of my most liked songs. And off of that song, I was like, you know what? Let's, let's try to make a project. And we just kept making music for a couple years. And we took the best tracks that we felt had a sound that was whole and turned that into Wake Up. Do you have any specific thoughts about Get Out My Way, like as a song, like what the sort of story behind that was beyond borrowing or drawing inspiration from Deftones' White Pony? Get Out My Way, I wanted to be like, like I wanted it to be a song that was taking a stance of, yo, I'm fucking here. Because with that song, me and him were looking at like Twitter a bunch and, and we were thinking about how much noise it is out there and how hard it is to break to get a listener, especially at that time where there was just like, especially at that time and living in Los Angeles. And I kind of feel like LA fucks up the head of a lot of artists, especially up and coming artists. They constantly feel like they're in a battlefield and they're fighting to get heard. And I see a lot of artists wear themselves out and just get bitter living in a place like that, right? And I think it was some of that energy 
of wanting to be heard. And like we were using a studio, we were using our publisher studio after hours. So it's like we're we're in the we're in a warehouse in this small room basically, and we're just like, damn, no one's around. How can we get heard? Let's make some music that really reflects how we want to jump out there sonically. And I think that's what that song was all about. And I wanted to keep like a rapid fire flow throughout the song, not like worry about making verses, not worry about making a hook. Like I was just like, yo, I'm going to write a shitload of rhymes, try to rap throughout the the whole track. We're going to pick the best lyrics, put it all together. And then we're going to let the singer end it on kind of a sweet note to mellow it out some without any more input of my voice because you hear me rapping for longer than a normal verse and my voice is is sampled in the uh, beat too. Another opening track, you just want to come out and make a statement or, or punch somebody in the face, you know? Fuck yeah. I'm, I mean, I feel like there are so many albums when they list a title, uh, comma, intro, or or whatever, I just skip over it because many of them are like boring or it's a, or it's a skit. And I don't, and, and I feel like when you first put in the CD, that's how old I am, you, you want to, you want to catch people. Like, I feel like the first three songs of any album, you got to make sure people don't want to skip. So on each project, I'm always thinking about how I'm leading. Four. We're breaking the first song rule now. It, I told you it would happen <laughs> Finally. Eventually. Finally, jeez. Um, Get that algorithm nigga in check, please. <laughs> I, I'll make a note. Um, this is from 2017 from the McGregor Park album. It kind of ties into something uh, we could expand a little bit more on what you were talking about before. The song is called Legal Weed. Got passed in Texas Cause a white man and a Mexican were plexing Knuckled up straight flexing And stayed didn't need no weapon Said dirt we may do too strong El Paso put a band on the homegrown If you were black in a band probably play jazz Smoke grass and you know they wasn't having that In 1930 Harry J and Slinger played dirty He was the head of narcotics If you smoked weed he said stop it Off to the car and the president Roosevelt My boy Ill Faded made that beat He's from Houston too And he is the first guy I ever met who lived in the suburbs. Like I met him my first year of college and I had a friend who was friends with him. Now now I'm from Houston, from like the, the like the inner city close to downtown Houston. I'm from Third Ward, right? Ill Faded is from Mo City. And he's from a part of Mo City that's like a suburban, like little gated community type thing. And I remember pulling up to that and being like, bro, this is like TV. Like I've never like seen a sub development like this or whatever. And uh, he's a fucking super pothead, super crazy stoner. And I was like, bro, I I felt at that time, which I don't know, that, that album came out 2017. I probably wrote that song in 2016. I felt like that mid-2010s period, it was too much boring-ass weed rap going on, like from Currency to Wiz and, and like lesser people. There was so much weed rap music. I was like, being a, a weed head is fucking corny. But I, but I thought... It could be cool to make a weed song from a different perspective. And on my Double Dragon album, I have a song called Denim Guinness Boys, where I tell the history of Guinness and 
fucking Levi's jeans. And I was like, let me try that same approach, but with weed laws. So on that song, I'm breaking weed uh, fucking crim- criminalization from the first law down to recent times over a beat that you would normally make a regular smoking song to. And I just thought that'd be a more interesting approach. Absolutely. So do you think if we're able to project, and I I don't think this is a wild estimation, if we continue to see marijuana laws relaxed and decriminalization and legalization, do you think that that will eventually lead to a lack of weed songs in hip hop? Do you think Mm. that any of the appeal of the weed anthem is that we're sort of speaking about the forbidden fruit? It's like the taboo, you know, like subject. Totally. I was just thinking yesterday I was like, damn, I wonder what it'd be like if I was like 21 back in the 90s. And I was like listening to Far Side and like Devin the Dude and being like, yeah, we, y'all don't know about this this shit. We fucking smoking. And it's some like rebel shit, which in my mind, it is so far from that now. I don't think that we're going to see let. Well, I feel like this. I feel like we're going to see more songs about newer drugs. You know what I mean? And I think weed is going to be more and more like coffee or like a beer. It's just a thing that's like around and you don't have to draw attention to it as much, which is how I was feeling during that period. I was like, why are there so many celebrated fucking weed rappers when weed is like basic shit now? You know what I mean? I felt like it was played out then. Particularly too, uh, in a lot of I can't think of specifics, but I know that there was like a general like feeling in a lot of rap songs that sometimes weed was mentioned to be almost like menacing. It's like, yo, when I get the weed in me, and it's like everybody's usually pretty cool when you have the weed in you. You know, like it's it's yeah. not going to necessarily. It's not like you're saying like, yo, he's coked out and he's coming for you. It's like <laughs> it's like, oh, he's stoned. Like he's probably a little happier. He's maybe a little more relaxed. I don't know. I, I've thought about that a lot. What the changing of how we relate to drugs affects the way that they are promoted in pop culture or music, you know? Totally, man. And I remember on my first album, Rab Gab, I have a song called Put It In The Air that's all about weed. And at the time, that was like right when like, you know, Wiz, Currency, that shit was kind of new and wasn't really spreading crazy yet. And at the time I was like, yeah, we on the weed shit. It's, you know, different from y'all. But over that short five years leading up to legal weed, I was like, yo, they done wore this fucking thing out. Weed is corny, man. <laughs> and I didn't want to break my nigga ill fate's heart because he's such a fucking weed dude. But I was like, bro, let me try to do a weed song, but on my level, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's the best kind. That's that's honesty, you know, that we, we were talking about that earlier. Just like being being honest and true to yourself. Uh so Gotta you, be. Could, you could do the weed song, just you know. Do, do what feels right. So far. Back in 2018, this is Charge It to the Game from the House with a Pool project, and the song is called Take a Sip. After school, I ate baloney. Tony showed me my opponent. You might think that I'm a trampoline the way she bouncing on it. Pino sipping, now we own it. If we rent it, she's still in it. Pull up, everybody wanna take a sip. I do the twist, and they always wanna take a flip. Oh yeah, it's hot in here, I think I made a mist When it's lit, everybody want it, everybody want it I pull up, everybody want it, take a sip I do a twist and they always want to take a flick Oh yeah, it's hot in here, I think I made a mist When it's lit, So, Charter to the Game is me and Kyle Mabson He's a young mulatto man from LA And uh, I'm, I met him 
when I first lived in LA back in 2012 through this rapper named Juicebox. And I kept in touch with, with Mabson for years. And Mabson's interesting because he does like concert lighting rig shit and he makes noise music and he makes art. And he makes beats, but his beats are only on analog gear. Charted to the game, our rule with that group is there are no dolls used to make the music. Analog everything to make the music. And that gear that's on the front cover, that's all the gear that we use to make the album. And even when we perform live, he brings the whole rig out. He, he has an MPC 2000. He has fucking racks. He, he has like the uh, Mo Fat rack and all that type of shit, right? So we have two projects. The first project is called Urban Hall of Fame. And I think that's our best release yet. It's an EP and I'm just rapping my ass off and it's super raw and has like a lo-fi sound. On this album, House With A Pool, we wanted to raise the value a bit. So we hooked up with uh, Clipping and one of the Clipping members... He engineered the whole record and we recorded it all at his house with much nicer gear. And he's like an analog freak too. So like all the auto-tune that's on this album, we're not going through the plug-in. We're going through this old school Antares rack that he has from like back in the day to dial in the auto-tune. It's crazy. But charted to the game, our whole thing is super simple. These analog, loud, raw-ass beats and my mode rapping on those songs is just spitting. Bars, 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 bars. She don't know what to do with me when I start to act like 50. Got that P-I-M-P in me, but I got no need for limping. 1950, lot of lynchings. Now it's the penitentiary. Innocence is still the same and I don't think that it'll change. Innocence is real subjective when it comes to my complexion. Fuck everyone in a because they all got something missing. Lot of liquor in my system got me debating protection. Yeah, I'm raw like ODB, but I don't need no mini me. Just shit like that throughout the whole catalog for Charter to the Game. I guess it helps one to do projects like that because it keeps you sharp. Those are all skills that you're going to want to have. Mm-hmm. Also, if you're making an album that does have more of a precise focus where it's more personal leaning, you get that out of your system. And then totally. you don't necessarily need to have the look what I can do song or songs on an album that might not necessarily call for that. Mm-hmm. Charter to the Game is a totally different act from Fat Tony. Like with Fat Tony, I'll go heavy on the concepts and on the themes and taking it to the next level in more of a way that's about me as the artist. Where Charter to the Game, it's about the energy. And that's what we do there. And it's not like I would do Charter to the Game over at Fat Tony or vice versa. Song 6. Back 2010, this is the yeah, this is the oldest song uh, of, of all the ones we're going through. It is from the Rabdar Gav album. It was a single. It's got a funny video. It's the You Ain't Fat joint. Oh, nigga, you ain't fat. My house is, my ounce is, my mouth is. If you don't like that, keep bouncing, keep bouncing, keep bouncing. Nigga, you ain't fat. My kids is, my bitch is, my dick is. If you don't like it, mind your business, your business, your business. 
is near nigga you Every ain't time fair. I step inside the restaurant the way to be Looking at me crazy like he paid to be afraid of me Says he heard my name and I wanna make a play First of all Go not kill that beat like for like anybody back when that album came out because like I was such like I was into so much different styles of hip-hop like I love East Coast shit I love Southern shit I love Little B I like weirdos I like the rappers that that many people think can't rap and I like the people that I rap too much who are great too <laughs> who are kind of niche I like it all and at that time I felt like some people in my local music community, friends of mine, peers of mine, shit, thought that I was too left and not much of like a real hip hopper. And I feel like with this track, me and Gold and I were like, nigga, we can do boom bap too. We can do soul samples. We can do it all, fool. We can do fucking like shit. Any anybody that think that we not, you know, students of rap and really know this shit and can't do the old school shit that, that y'all cherish, watch. And I feel like that was such a perfect first video. Making that video was so crazy. First of all, the song itself, Nigga You Ain't Fat. When I was 11 years old, around Christmas time, we had a house fire. I lived in a two-story house. The second floor of my house burned down like a couple weeks before Christmas. Christmas was fucking canceled. We had to clean up all this stuff on our front lawn. And it was like photos, clothing, just everything from, from our lives. And we lost a lot of my mom and dad's record collection. Uh. And I remember digging through the rubble and I saw a Richard Pryor album called That Nigga's Crazy. And I was like, wow, I can't believe that he used nigga in his album title. Because I feel like, you know, nigga's a word, especially at that time, like when when um, I made this song, like the late 2000s, there were so many people running around, like trying to ban the N-word. And, there was a lot of pushback. There was like Oprah and and and, and like, uh, no, not just Oprah. I don't mean to like single her out, but yeah, there, there was a whole Cosby, movement. Yeah, Cosby, yeah. But not, not just from like black elites, but from white folks too, who are like, y'all should be ashamed of yourself for, for using nigga. And I feel like Richard Pryor used nigga in his title to kind of be like, here's a word that you invented you're uncomfortable with me saying it now. You came up with it. If you're going to work my record, you're going to have to acknowledge this word that you created. And that's kind of the viewpoint I had with naming the song, Nigga, You Ain't Fat. And also, because I'm Fat Tony, I would get a lot of questions, especially back then, about why am I named that? Because when they hear Fat Tony, they think of a guy who's like, Three, 350 pounds, which, which I wasn't. I was chubby. I was fat to me, but I was not fat in the mindset that they think of, right? And I thought it'd be great to just address this thing that people say to me damn near every day in my first song, my first video, my first way of really announcing myself. And making the video was fucking crazy because my dumb ass used to DJ this dollar drink night, dollar wells night at this like hipster bar. All right. And I'm like 21, 22. This, this is like right before I got arrested and got on fucking papers when I was at the dollar drink night. And I used to DJ off iTunes. I wasn't mixing shit, but they fucked with me because I played 
like you, you know how like now there's like uh, you know DJs. What do you call it? Open format where you yeah. play everything. I was doing that before folks were doing it, right? At least folks doing it in like my little music community, and it would get turned because people would would get drunk, and I'm playing throwbacks like thong song and back that ass up and all this shit, right? And at one of those nights, this drunk-ass woman runs up on me and was like, yo, let me buy you a drink. You got to let my boyfriend make your music video. And I'm trying to DJ off of iTunes. So I'm like, yo, chill. I'm like, all right, I'm going to put on a long song. And then I talked to her for like a few minutes. She bought me a, a dollar whiskey ginger or some bullshit. And then she was telling me how her boyfriend is a filmmaker and he's a big fan of yours and he wants to make a music video. We'll handle all the production. We just want to get into music videos. And I was like, all right, all right well, here's the song. Give me something. And the guy, Joey Graham, who went on to make a bunch of my music videos, came up with this concept that included some like horror and some visual effects. And I thought it was just so fascinating and it fucking killed. People liked the video right out the gate. It was the first video of my first album and it got me some notice. It's so funny, like hearing you talk about the whole divides and like, oh, that's not like hip hop enough or, you know, purist enough. That almost seems like such a specious argument a decade later, right? Like, yeah. like that, 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 <laughs> that ain't happening now. <laughs> no, it's not happening now. And I don't know if like, I can't tell if it's just because we all matured and got more accepting or if we're just so far removed from that. that I was the last one. Like, like I was in my early 20s and my late teens when I was being, being told that. And I was being told that by people who were in their late 20s, early 30s. You know what I mean? And God forbid so, they come to your, your DJ night and they see you DJing off <laughs> iTunes. That's a, oh, that's a rap where you're like, yo. They didn't come to that because <laughs> like it was too much. Like my like hipster night was like yeah, yeah. some like white folks bullshit. You know what I mean? Nobody from like the hip hop scene gave a fuck about that. You know what? Actually, funny thing. There's a DJ from my hometown named C Plus Bad Knives. And he was a hip hop DJ who was into different kinds of music. So he'd play a hip hop night and, and play like a fucking Cure song or like a New Order song, right? And when I was 18, me and my boy Smash Bro snuck into a bar for their hip hop night on a weekday and it was dead. There was like 10 people there, right? And we stayed till it ended. We didn't order drinks. We, we were like geeked that they let us walk in there and we just sat and just listened to music. And I remember the DJ C Plus played a Morrissey song and this tall backpacker white bro walked up to him and was like, yo, turn that faggot shit off, pardon my language, put on some real hip hop. And I was like, yo, he walked off. The DJ ignored him. The guy came back, told him off again, and touched the needle, making the record skip. The DJ came from behind the booth, and he was a little guy, and this guy was, was tall. He jumped up, stole him off in the <laughs> face, and then the security pulled the guy out the club, and the DJ ran back, and he played Bone Crusher, I Ain't Never Scared. <laughs> yes! And I was like, damn, this is what it's like to go to a bar. I'm like 18. I'm like, and I'm and I don't drink or anything. Like, I'm like, what the fuck's going on? That guy, 
made me feel like, yo, it's cool because he was a hip hop elder. Like I heard about him booking like cool, cool Keith and all type of shit back in the nineties. He's like one of the OGs. And I was like, yo, if he can play Morrissey and like different kinds of music, I can do that too. As the moral of the story, as we always know, nobody is more protective over real hip hop than straight white guys. <laughs> <laughs> they, they are the gatekeepers of, uh, of all things keeping it real. Song Back to 2018. And I like that we're ending with this song just because of its title, because, you know, maybe we will come full circle, but it is a song called Full Circle. Born in the eighth, third ward exact, went around the world, looking for the world, looking for it, barely looking back at all, looking forward, gave my all for it all day. 2K11, BK, thinking of a plan with my friends. Summer in the city, feel real damn granny real sick, mama held her hand. On the other hand, far from home, on the other line Heard mother cry, knew it in an instant She's long gone when she died I died, I just took a walk, took a stroll Met a lady in the park, told her all about it Let the tears go yep. Always love when somebody can ride the the six eight three four, You know, sort of triplet flow And that, that's yeah. definitely on yeah. point here Yeah, that was my Because I remember making that song I was like, damn, how do I make this feel interesting? Because you know, clearly that's connected to to ten thousand hours in its theme. I'm like talking about my like grandmother passing. I'm talking about myself made in the, in the same year, the same time, and heaven was part of the sessions for that EP too, right? And I was thinking like, man, I just made an album where I was trying to like stretch. You know, I had a country song on that album. I was singing more. I, I was trying to do something different. And I heard this beat and I was like, damn, how do I switch it up? Because this feels like something I've done before. And doing that triplet style flow made it interesting for me to write to and to keep everything right inside that line and also make it to the point where I got to catch enough breaths doing it that when I do it live, it'll be really impressive. Because we've all seen, well, at this point, you can hear a song sometimes where somebody is rapping their ass off and you're like, that's great. And there's no way you'll ever be able to do this live. Like, you know, yeah. you hear somebody who's mastered the seamless punch-ins and just like, again, that's really dope, but like, how are you actually going to execute that? So writing for the stage is another thing where you really won't get that until you've had enough experiences to start to think in that mode where you're not just writing from, oh, in the studio, in the bedroom, whatever it is, you know? And honestly, one of the best ways for me to write something that I can execute live is to write it in my head and not to like just type it out or just write it out by hand. Cause I feel like when you're making up rhymes in your head, you're making them up based on your own natural rhythm. So you're not gonna make anything that is too far out of your range, right? On the Exotica album, we try to take that further by recording some of the songs where I rapped the whole song through and not just punch in the chorus. And that was another exercise like, is this something that I can do at the drop of a dime with no extras, with no frills? Like, would would this song work if you were just beating on the table and I'm rapping a song to you? You know what I mean? I, I want all of my music 
from this point on to be something that is effective in many different contexts. You could pull out a fucking acoustic guitar and play Gambling Man. You know what I mean? And it makes sense as you're rapping the song along with it. What made you do Full Circle sort of as an EP and why why not a full project or why not part of whatever you know other album you were working on around that time? Because I felt like I already had 10,000 hours coming which is like a massive album. It has like 17 songs, like something crazy. And I felt like it would be foolish to put out more. Like this year, I put out three records. Two of them are studio albums and one is a a live album. Both studio albums are like 30 minutes. So I felt like with all three of those records in a year, you're not as overwhelmed as like several like 20 track albums. Even though there are people that like that shit, that's... Never been something that I've been a big fan of. Like, I get overwhelmed when my favorite artist is putting out too much music at once because I want to have an album that I can love for at least a year. You know what I mean? Me and the producer, Jay Keller, we just wanted to make something and, like, get it out there. We, like, didn't want to linger and, like, make a full project either. Like, like I felt on both of our parts, we were, like, Let's make something that we can put out ourselves. Because this album didn't come out on the same label as uh, 10,000 Hours. This is something that we just put out totally on our own. And we wanted it to be that way because we wanted the experience of putting out music on our own. Because most of my records have come out on le- on labels from Car Park to Parts and Records has Smart Ass Black Boy to Don Giovanni has 10,000 Hours. And it had been a long time since I just tried to put out music on my own. And it's the time when, like, you have, you know, Distro Kid coming, STEM coming. And I was like, yo, I want to take advantage of this. I want to see what's what's out there. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Kind of just to close things, looking back at all of the songs and the projects, you mentioned that you kind of felt like you were now entering into a zone that you sort of like now feel like you've really found your voice. What's next? What are you looking forward to? And how do you think your material that you're either working on or or will follow that you haven't even conceived yet? How does that sort of fit into the the canvas that you've painted already? I think I'm going to make another album with Goldeneye. And on this album, I want to I mean, I'm kind of thinking out loud because we're we're far away from actually making it, but I want to get more musical on this record. Like on the the Exotica album where, you know, Goldeneye's writing a lot of the melodies. It's like not full of samples and stuff. And we're talking about the type of instruments we, we want to incorporate and doing stuff like the Mariachi remix. Like that's us trying to stretch and get more musical with our records. And I think that's the path we want to go down on this next album. But far as like themes or storytelling or whatever, I'm giving myself a lot of time before I make another record because I just put out so much and there's a lot going on in the world right now. And I really want to just kick back and just watch and just listen and just feel what is going on before I try to go back and make an album that is fitting for people. Like with the Exotica album, writing it at the end of 2019, we felt like the world was so hectic. People needed storytelling and a form of escapism that was healthy and was fulfilling and entertaining. Little did did we know, 
2020 would happen and the world would get worse. And we kind of felt like the album came out at the right time to tap into what people need rather than making another album just talking about Trump or even talking or or, or, or even going back to the album and like adding songs about COVID or like whatever to stay relevant. I think what's more important than addressing the relevant topics, it is addressing the relevant feelings that we're all feeling globally, nationally, in our own towns or, or, or whatever you want to feed off of to inspire your work. That'll resonate longer anyway. And it keeps it more evergreen because the feelings, well, you know what? We've got like five feelings we can probably feel. <laughs> you know, it's just applying them to all the different uh, scenarios. So yeah. that, makes, that makes total sense. Dude, this was great. Great talking to you, man. It's, it's always dope to really get to... Um, talk about songwriting and like the process and all that shit behind the curtain because I feel like rarely do underground rappers get approached to dissect their catalog and I think underground artists are often more interesting than the press leads us to believe they are so it's great to have an opportunity like this to really talk about my music I couldn't agree with him more Thanks again to Fat Tony for chopping it up with me. You can stay up to date on all things Fat Tony by visiting Anthony OB, that's Anthony O-B-I, dot com. Hey, listen, if you like this show, tell a friend and be sure that you subscribe and rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Uh, you can hit me up at Sean Dammit on all the social media or shoot me an email at can'tknocktheshuffle at gmail.com. Let me know what you think, who you want to see on the show next, blah, 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 blah. Check out my hip-hop game show, The Questions, by visiting questionshiphop.com. And if you like Can't Knock the Shuffle, you need to check out all the other podcasts on Stony Island Audio. Just search and you will find. All right, till next time, folks. Peace.